back in the day, there was Second Life concerts going. It probably still happens. But with popular folks like uh, Chameleon Air came up into Second Life. Suzanne Vega came up into you Second Life. You just said popular and Chameleon Air in the same sentence? I had to reach, man. I had to reach. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. How was your fourth, man? It's good. How about you? It was good. We were out in Cali. We, you were on the road last week. I'm going to be on the road next week, which is pretty exciting. So we keep, we keep traveling the world, which I really like. We, uh, the, world, you know, the world's aggressive, but yeah, that's a, you know, we got, you got to keep it fresh, keep things on tour. Uh, COVID, yeah, COVID hurt our travel in the world, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Now we're more stateside. You know how we were talking TikTok investors last week? Yes, yes, yes. So I know TikTok wasn't around in 1994, but in 1994, I was like, going on 12-ish, I think. I can imagine the TikTok of 1994 being like, yo, listen, little 12-year-old kid, if you buy GE now and rate till 2022, you'll be worth $7 billion. And do you know what $1 in GE purchased in 1994 would be worth today, Dougals? Spit it. $1. (laughs) Is is this including dividends? Uh, it's probably this is a non-dividend reinvestment. But still, my still, joke, still. my joke didn't work out. Darn it! Still, um, yeah, isn't that amazing? Didn't you tell me that you were at a party or something like that in like the late '90s, early 2000s, and someone did tell you to buy GE? They like, said did- it's the, uh, uh, the only sure bet on Wall Street, and they <laughs> worked on Wall Street. <laughs> yes. So, exactly. so your hypothetical story occurred. <laughs> <laughs> It did occur. Yeah. No, and what's yeah, that's great because they told me. Um, I think this is early two thousands, but they're spitting that knowledge, if we can call it. And uh, one in G in the early two thousands, I'm trying to eyeball this chart here, is worth significantly less than a dollar now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that was the wrong time because I was right when uh, when Welch was was getting out right. He just left. He saw a firestorm behind him and flew his private jet. <laughs> away from yep. that thing said jeff you can take it on still regardless of the the actual total returns dividends thing the the chart is ridiculous to look at it's just crazy to see and that you know the momentum doesn't continue forever it makes you think about which darling today whether it's apple google microsoft like will look like a shell of itself in yeah. 15 years 20 years from now and it's going to be most of them probably i mean that's the thing I don't think I sent this over to you, but I saw a pretty cool, um, I don't know what to call it. I want to call it a chart, but it was like a, like a movie chart. <laughs> so I don't know, like a moving images from Data is Beautiful that was showing the most popular websites, but it went month by month from 1993 to either 2020 or 2021 and just showed like number of, uh, of unique visits by website by month. And it's, it's like, it was like, you know, uh, moving yeah. between them. So the TikTok of 1994 was AOL, just as an FYI. But uh, I, I'm going to send this over to you because we'll put it on the, uh, the sub stack on Monday too. But it's interesting to watch the shift, right? And you see, there's one point where you see like the emergence, you see the emergence of everything, the emergence of Yahoo, just take over and dominate AOL. Yeah. Then you see Google come up. Then you see Yahoo come back. 
Yeah. And then and then, and then you don't anymore. <laughs> so oh, it's cool. Man. I'll send it over to you. All right. Can I fishbowl reach? Yeah, please. I'm going to reach in the fishbowl and I'm going to talk about Post Malone. I'm excited. <laughs> because so Post Malone coming out with a new album or maybe just came out with a new album. And he's holding a concert in partnership with Meta Platforms. So it's going to be a virtual concert that they're going to make into a film, it seems like, and release later on. I was reading this piece in Billboard. And at first I went, like, I brought this up before. It took me so back into Second Life days because, you know, what have we discussed? We discussed how NFTs became a real big thing over the past couple of years. And Second Life had NFTs. You created virtual stuff. You owned it, right? And that ownership was tracked. Yep. The cryptocurrencies become a thing. Second Life had the, the Linden dollar, right? Which was their own currency, not built on blockchain, their own currency. Anyway, yeah. concerts, man. Back in the day, back in the day, there was Second Life concerts going. It probably still happens. But with popular folks like uh, Chameleonaire came up into Second Life. Suzanne Vega came up in. You just said life. popular and chameleonaire in the same sentence. I had to reach, man. I had to reach, <laughs> but, but, uh, but anyway. So there were like concerts, and there was a whole like, can music become a thing? And uh, record labels would get islands, you know, like virtual land in there, and you know, it, it didn't turn into anything right there. But Second Life musicians would still would still perform anyway. So harken back to those days. But where this is obvious. But the thing that reading this article that kind of clicked for me that I said, this might actually work, maybe not concerts per se, but the metaverse with meta doing it could actually work is when they said Post Malone's going to be performing and it's going to happen in Horizon World and live on Facebook and Instagram. And again, I know that that's obvious because meta owns all this stuff. But I went, yeah, that we didn't have anywhere near that kind of reach for because bigger than more important i think than post malone being able to broadcast in horizon world i think that's i mean it is what it is it's a gimmick i think at the end but what's, mm -hmm. what's more important than that is there were so many i'll go back to second life second life artists like musicians that couldn't find their way in the real world that would only perform in second life and that distribution channel never got big enough and so now i'm thinking that you you could actually have a world where people that maybe aren't can't find their their footing have systemic issues or whatever or don't feel comfortable making their way in the real world might be able to Wait. start well so is your hypothesis here that second life did this all 20 years ago and it had limited success never really turned into a thing this is there's a lot of parallels as we've talked about to things that we've tried before but this is attached to a user base of two to three billion people. And is that a potential game changer? Is that where you're going here? Yeah, that, that's where I'm going. And so it's interesting. It's, again, it's it's less about because the the beauty that I saw of Second Life was that there was this whole world that people that couldn't, whether it was for geographic reasons, political reasons, whatever, couldn't find their their home, right? Or their safety psychologically in the real world could like do their thing and make a name for themselves in second life like it was really cool to watch that but it always stopped there yeah and so now again post malone doing his thing probably more of a gimmick great for him makes more money good 
but I think it's more of the people that start in the virtual world being being able to then foray into the real world, which is a shift that we could never make happen. So may or may not occur. I don't know. But reading this, and again, it's really obvious, but I was reading this and just when I when I saw it's going to happen on Facebook and Instagram and Horizon World at the same time, I went, there, there's, there's if, if they can get the metaverse right, because so far everything I've seen about their actual metaverse, I haven't used it, but everything I've seen seems like it's a, it's like worse than Second Life, um, but maybe, maybe not, I haven't tried it, but I was like, if they can get that right, I think there might be a there there. I mean, the games are fun. We have an Oculus. And my kids like it. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess my take is, if only it wasn't Post Malone. <laughs> that, that, was, that was your whole takeaway. <laughs> no, that was mostly a joke. Yeah. Um, they just well, need to buy it, Second Life. To be honest, I mean, he's spending so much money on this thing. Like, there's not a... Not, not even for an I. Sorry, for any Second Life users that are listening to this, you are going to hate the fact that I just said that because it's like a, it's sacred, right? Like yeah. it is a sacred place for you. I'm talking business. I'm talking business right here. If you're going to spend so much money on the metaverse, just buy literally the talent. Like it's, it's not even about the, just buy it and like extract information. Yeah. Like learn I mean, about 20 years of data that you have on like, cause you can look at the purchases that people make when they make them, how many places they travel to, who does it. Um, about real names versus fake names like there's so much to learn just through that data and facebook is pretty good at mining data right i mean that's like their thing so well listen as a meta shareholder over here i'm just you remember that will smith movie where he can erase people's memory what's that called it's not an alien one i'm gonna erasing memories yeah he has like this little light i mean if he could do that (laughs) i think he should go back to in real oh, life it, oh you're talking about men in black there we go yeah okay so yeah. i'm gonna get one of those gadgets i'm gonna go over to hawaii and find zuck and i'm gonna do that thing and erase metaverse from his memory so he could actually just spend money on the core business that makes decent returns so i don't want him to buy second okay so as a meta shareholder yes you i i hear you also though with all that's happening in the ad business right now don't you think that it's interesting to have some other potential revenue avenues that aren't the the huh. the internet? Wait, the metaverse isn't the internet? No, I'm sorry. I meant like the two-dimensional internet, the old internet. It's also just oh. the internet, but but you know what I mean. <laughs> are you are you making a bullish case for the metaverse as a business investment? Oh, dude, I uh, up until I read this billboard piece, <laughs> Post Malone has opened my eyes. What, wasn't it like 20 episodes ago that you were like totally trashing the whole idea and say that it was already tried? Yeah, I was like, you tried this stuff because and because at the time they were they were talking about um, like board meetings and all this stuff. I was like, we've done that. That's that's no yeah. good. You're right. Yeah. I was I was saying it's it's been tried. And then <laughs> I remembered that they own Facebook and Instagram like the most. Obvious. And now you're on the Zuck train. This should, is OK. I should Amazing. tell I should tell Zuck about this. Maybe he doesn't know that they yeah, also own like, Facebook. And <laughs> hey, Zuck, did you forget it? You're on Facebook. Yeah. It's like this pretty. Get the uh, sunscreen. Get the sunscreen out of your <laughs> eyes. Uh, anyway. Yeah, no, it really did. It like it turned me I, bullish is probably too aggressive. Right. But it, it something did click or I was like, OK, I think there could be something there that when you look at what second life didn't have 
because it's easy to say Second Life had the 20 year head start, if you want to say that, or like 20 years of evidence that maybe this couldn't work. But I hadn't thought enough about what does Meta have that Linen Lab didn't and doesn't have. I mean, I'm just excited. I think we got some content for our end of year. Diggle sticks his foot in his mouth uh, segment here. This is great. Because <laughs> whatever happens here, I'm going to pull the clip of you saying the opposite and then <laughs> call it good. But but I think that that last episode was actually in 2021. <laughs> so that's that's old Dougals. That's old Dougals. All right, All right. We need to switch gears here before Let's we do get it. in trouble. We've talked about food deserts on the show and food deserts are fascinating to me that uh, often ties back to our dollar store conversations which seem to happen way too much and axios had a piece this week talking about news deserts that i found interesting and so um because a lot of local newspapers are shutting down they're seeing more and more news deserts and within those news deserts, I mean, this makes sense from a business perspective, but it's kind of sad on a socioeconomic, with a socioeconomic lens, I'd say. So in a news desert, the average annual income for a home is $15,000 less than the average U.S. household. And only 20% of adults living in a news desert have a bachelor's degree compared to uh, 38% for all of the U.S. So like, it, it makes sense, right? The most economically challenged places are the ones that have a hard time making the economics of a newspaper or internet news source work. And therefore, they end up in a news desert, which has other ramifications. It's just kind of sad to see. I don't know. I hadn't heard that term yeah. and wanted to mention it. And it does, to, to the point you're alluding to there, it does seem like that's a, that's a cycle like a self-reinforcing cycle where you're in this situation uh less educated aren't making aren't, aren't as um economically on solid footing then you have less access to news of the outside world which doesn't help with the education and learning piece yeah right, yeah yeah i that is a i don't i hadn't really thought about news deserts too because and this is often you know, getting stuck in bubbles. Let's talk about, you know, my own bubble getting stuck in where it seems like content is everywhere. Like, how do I get away from mm -hmm. all, all the news and the content? And that's not how, that's not where, I can't even say that's not where everyone is. That's not where a significant material portion of people actually are. Exactly. And um, in, in a news desert, you're even more likely to, we just talked social media, right? You're even more likely to go to social media, which is kind of this person to this person to this person saying and, and believe that to be like the true fact-based fact-checked news and it's just not so that reminds me of another thing which is a book i read this week called nickel and dimed and Douglas, it's hilarious that you also picked up this book and just haven't read it yet so i'm yep. gonna throw a couple tidbits your way and then we might do a deep dive if you find it interesting on a later podcast episode so the basis here is a journalist this is 20 years ago now, like this is 99 and 2000, but she wanted to put herself in the shoes of a minimum wage worker, basically. So she went to three different locations, Maine, Florida, and Minneapolis, Minnesota, and worked uh, jobs as either a waitress, a maid, 
She worked at Walmart and there's a few other odd jobs. Basically at every location, she had to have two jobs. She often worked uh, six to seven days a week. Really fascinating read, but some stats in there that jumped off the page at me. First is regarding drug testing. She has a hypothesis that drug testing might just be one of those extra obstacles that's put in place to make it more difficult for your worker who maybe doesn't have access to a car to actually get to the drug test, which might be 25 minutes away by car and vice versa. So here's the stat, though, that she pulls out about the federal government's drug testing for these lower income jobs. This is from 1990. In 1990, the Federal government spent almost $12 million uh, to test 29,000 federal employees and only 153 tested positive, meaning the government was spending $77,000 per positive test. This goes back to your whole, where are you spending your money, government? Can you please just spend it more wisely? I mean, or like we're talking about jobs in in the late 2000s that were making seven bucks an hour can you imagine if you paid those people 12 million dollars more and just fired the the occasional folk that showed up like drunk or high yeah no this, this stuff uh i don't know it makes me pretty angry so <laughs> I, I, instead the i'll just chuckle one, about it right here yeah i mean yeah there's no easy fixes here the next one relates to rents. We've talked a lot about housing, but if you're making seven bucks an hour or today, 15 bucks an hour, your rental income is going to take up even a larger portion of your total disposable wealth, right? And so the study here says that 59% of poor renters, which amounts to more than 4.4 million households, were spending more than 50% of their income on shelter. That's, I mean, unsustainable. It's completely it's the, unsustainable. Like, that's frightening. Like living in that way, not by choice. Not at all by it's choice. It's frightening, right? Because that's different than the, the folks that are like, YOLO uh, interest rates. Let me buy a $5 million house when I'm making 100 grand a year or something. That's, that's different than, than that. This is like, let me try and find a, a place that I can afford. But this is the, the cheapest place that I can find for my family to be safely. And it's 50% oh, well, of your income. And, and you'll see that safety often goes out the door. Yeah. I want to call these places safe or nice. A lot of them don't have a refrigerator or other things. So that changes the dynamic of what you can have in your diet for the worse. And then often makes it more expensive as well because you can't go buy, you know, perishable meats or fruits um, because you don't have a place to store it. You're going place to place and you're often working at least two jobs that are fairly physically demanding. So the last thing I'll mention, and then we can, we can loop back when you finish the read. It's a little scary that we both picked up the same book without talking about it. Yeah. And, and the, same the book week. happens to be 20 years old. Yeah. That's, that's um, really weird. That's really weird. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on here, but the thing I always had a hard time reconciling it and still do to a certain extent is like, it, this just economics, right? This just supply demand equation of like, why are there people willing to take $15? Well, no, in today's world, it's probably more like in some places, people are willing to take a $12 an hour job, but a $12 an hour job, there's no way you could possibly have a decent place to live, food, 
the like the the bare necessities which goes to this um classification of the working poor right yep there's a a belief in america especially if you go back to like the 50s and 60s that if you work hard part of the american dream is if you work hard you have what you need to be like middle class and that's gone out the window in a way um with some of these some of these really low income jobs where it doesn't matter if you work 60 hours a week, you still don't have enough money to pay the bills. What I think she articulately points out, which I really thought, but I want your take on is, um, I just thought this was so interesting, is it's not a true free market at that scale of the socioeconomic like employment space. Um, it's not a free market for a lot of reasons. It's not a free market because you might not have the transportation you need to get to the place that pays 15 bucks an hour instead of 12 bucks an hour. It's not a free market because you might be taking care of your grandparents or young kids. Maybe there's childcare burdens that don't work. It It's not a free market for so many reasons that some people take the Walmart job because they managed to have a place that's walking distance to Walmart. And the only job they can have is one that they can walk through like there's just so many restrictions in a lot of cases that it changes the dynamics where it's not necessarily about a person saying this is a fair wage a person might be saying this is the only thing that meets my current circumstances and i know it's not fair yeah that's real talk man like real real talk um i also something you might be interested in i read a book either this year or last year i can't remember but it came out two or three years ago called on the clock uh, and it was written by, I'm going to get this wrong, but for those, if you want to search Emily Gundelsberger, something like that. Okay. Um, and similarly, a reporter what, took, uh, took jobs at like a, a call center, like an outsourced call center, Amazon. There were a couple others, uh, yeah. McDonald's, and I think one more. They took and, and wrote about the experience of it. From what you're saying with Nickel and Dimed, and I'll read it very soon, so I'll be able to compare directly. It seems like uh, the the styles of the books were a bit different. Like she wrote more about, I would say it was kind of like the the personal, like the micro environments. Mm-hmm. That, that's what she talked about and didn't touch on the, the macro, which maybe this author did both, but she just kind, kind of, of touched on like like the micro. It's like, what what is the day-to-day exactly like? What are the relationships with other people like? How do my bosses treat me? It was like more of what uh, what that book was about, but um, I found it to be pretty pretty interesting. This is so important for people to understand. And recognize. I'm glad you brought up the, the book, um, because you, you mentioned the news desert thing with people that don't have access to information, and there's people that do have access to all the information, but generally don't consume or take to heart at least, mm-hmm. like that that type of environment and what people are are facing there. So, thank you. It, it it's interesting to me that, gosh, interesting is the wrong word. I mean, like I just have so much to learn, and I'm a person that has an investing podcast and tries to read three books a month and there's yep. still things like, and, and I have a minor in economics and I, <laughs> I have my MBA and like, you know, I have all this, I, I should be more educated than your average person on some of these market dynamics. And in certain cases I'm not. So there really is a, a ton to learn and it's a, a good book. Um, I recommend it. It's called nickel and dimes. So what, what did lead us both to pick up this 20 year old book at the same time? That is, it's, it's wild. I'm excited to read I, it. I think um, there's a subliminal, 
uh, marketing campaign going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> mine was at Barnes and Noble, so I just like picked it up. Off Wait, the, did mean, you? So did you buy it twenty years ago? No, no, no. It, it, you said Barnes and Noble. <laughs> I'm done. I went to Barnes and Noble this week. We're completely off the rails. All right. Bring us back um, to some investing talk. I will. I will. All right. So I'm going to reach into the fishbowl. And speaking of market dynamics and something we, we discussed a few months back, I'm going to talk about uh, black folks and crypto. So we, funny enough, this is a two for one special here, two for one special, because I just went and looked up what episode we discussed this on. Yeah. And it was episode 44, which was called Zuck is officially off his rocker. <laughs> so this is both the episode that we discussed this and the episode where I trashed Mark Zuckerberg in the metaverse. So interesting, two for one special. What we talked about then was there was this really fascinating Time article that came out that was discussing how um, African-Americans and minorities in general were getting heavily involved in crypto. And something that we said at the time was it was kind of two sides to it. We said, wonderful to get involved and like it's awesome that people see like liberation and freedom right in this new system and it's often these same folks that end up getting hurt the most when this new speculative thing yep. crashes down right and i'm not what i i'm not trying to imply that like crypto as a whole is going away or has gone to zilch but this article in the financial times called Crypto collapse reverberates widely among Black American investors mm -hmm. is saying like what we said. So one stat from it, a quarter of Black American investors owned cryptocurrencies at the start of the year. A quarter, right? Um, there's this. Well, they were more represented than, I mean, they really dived in, in, yeah. in like a good and bad way. Bad now that the crash has come because I'm sure there's economic ramifications, but cool that there was the curiosity and the desire to like explore that new investing approach. Yeah. Yes. And that, that's the, the whole thing, like the, the macro point, And it ties directly to what you were just talking about was that there are, there's a, there are many, many people right in the country that many of them minorities, maybe mostly right. Minorities that feel either excluded or violated, right, by the quote unquote traditional financial systems, like the banking yeah. systems, all the, the financial institutions have effectively like screwed them over. And so there's, there's a, a, a fear, right? There's a distrust that exists. And so you have this new thing that pops up around cryptocurrency. And like, this is something that we can own. Like we can make this ours. We can like, that's the liberation and freedom, right? That we talked about. And so we discussed that and that's the, it's like, there's such a beauty that exists in that. Like, it's really awesome. And right. I'm making up a stat here. This is completely made up what I'm about to say. 99% of Bitcoins owned by the Winklevoss twins and, and Michael <laughs> Saylor. Right. And so yeah, not, not really, that's not true. And it's incredibly volatile, volatile. It doesn't have dividends. There's no yep. cash backstop. So like it's uh, on the spectrum of risk. It is on the very, high end and it's much easier to be classified as a speculative asset than it is as an investable asset exactly and now that we've had many cryptocurrencies that have gone either to zero or down by 60 percent 70 percent like there's this major downturn that's happening right now i'll, I'll name a, a couple stories 
um, that were named in this article. One is there's this guy, Jefferson Noel. He's 27. And he said back in January of 19, he accidentally bought $5 of Bitcoin while using Square's cash app. And so he got this $5, didn't realize he bought this $5. And then last May, so like, a, what would that, that would have been like two and a half years later. Yeah. He sees that his $5 had turned into $70. And he's like, what? Like, that's insane. So he talked to some friends about it. He's like, yo, homie, what's going on? Right? And then they said, they said, you know, that $20,000 you have saved, what you should do oh, man. is throw that in Doge. No, no, not Doge. No, I don't think it was only Doge, but Doge was, yeah. was, was a bunch of it. So he got other cryptocurrencies, Dogecoin. Did, it says it did get some index funds as well, but it seems like it was mostly cryptocurrencies. And his quote, so that hasn't turned out well. Let me just go to the end. But yeah. the quote that, that this uh, Jefferson fellow says, he says, Black Americans do not want to be left behind again. As far as I can tell, the Black community sees crypto as a way to even the playing field and get in the game before the gatekeepers prevent others from participating. That gets back to like the fear and systems thing. So that's one story. Yeah. A second one, Dennis McKinley, 41, has been buying the dip. This is in crypto against the advice of his financial advisor. He said his crypto coins now constitute roughly 30% of his overall portfolio. We don't know how this is going to turn out, right? So Dennis could be, Dennis and Michael Saylor could be hanging out on Nectar Island. Yeah. Right. 120 years from now. 120 years. <laughs> yeah, we don't know how it's going to turn out. But the, the thing that just keeps coming to mind for me is independent of how this turns out, like it's not smart. Like that, that is, it's not, it's, it's really not smart because the outcomes don't always mean that you made the right choice at the right time in either direction, right? On the up or on the down. But yeah. th this is, it was uh, something that hit me uh, for, for those that only listen to this because you can only listen to this, right? We don't have video. I'm a black man. And I always had this, uh, this view, like when I was probably from like the mid nineties on, I was like, I want to take the world by storm and like create all kinds of wealth and hit all the home runs. Like I had this view. Right. And then at some point, this was probably maybe like 15 or so years ago, the, the importance of compounding like came into my mind. Like as I started like seeing the world and, and, and like reading stuff and saying, when I see these, the people that I financially was saying I wanted to emulate many times they've created this over generations yeah or right it's and and I went actually what's going to be important is for me to like not have my family my son in this case start as a bat boy like if he can start even between first and second base or in second base great and then he can build off of that and so that's the important thing like it's you don't you don't gotta you don't gotta nail it right now no, you, you got to build a solid phone. And that, so that's like, sorry, I didn't think we were going to American dreamland, but this is where we ended up. If you go back to the nickel and dimes book, like one of the things that I'm most proud of in my family history is like, you know, my grandfather was a janitor who worked two jobs, who built a foundation for my father, who built a foundation for me. Like it feels like the American dream. Right. And when I read a book like that, that feels like, that's not even available to a certain section of the population, the way we've structured our economic principles like that just doesn't seem okay. Um, it doesn't seem okay for people to have 
good, worthy jobs working 65 hours a week and still be classified as the working poor. In a lot of cases, be classified as people that still get like crazy government assistance because they don't even meet basic thresholds for standards of what's okay on the you know, food and housing front. And, and that leads to medical issues and it leads to everything else. So I don't know. I'm totally with you, man. Uh, yeah. It's like, it's just not okay. And I won't talk about this much on the, the pod here. Cause it just, we will go way down into uh, topics that this pod's not about. But if you didn't read the Bloomberg article that I sent over to you last Sunday, read that. Okay. Um, it's about basically taking land away from black people in South Carolina, but it, it's, it's similar, uh, similar thread where how do you build that foundation when you can't build that foundation? Yeah. Oh man. Messed up. Messed up. All right. Onward. Onward. What's in your movie? Fishbowl. Well, I'm, I'm happy to touch on something that's related a little bit related uh, briefly. So there's a wall street journal piece by JJ McCorvey called millennials were optimistic about their financial future. Now, not so much. A reason I say this is similar is because my message that I like want to send after this, and I'll talk about what it's about in a second here, is you don't, it's the same thing. You don't got to do it all now, people. You've got time. So in this article, what JJ writes about is JJ was saying he's, I don't know how old he is, but he's young and was riding this long bull market. His friends were riding the bull market. Pandemic happened. And uh, there was the, the great resignation. And it basically made it such that people that thought millennials, that thought that they were in this place of like financial freedom, grab the bull, literal the bull, maybe not literally, but the um, stock market bull by its horns, now in a place where they're facing a potential recession, there's a stock market slump. Uh, in one case, he talks about a friend who left their job to join a nonprofit, took a pay cut, but increased their housing costs. And now they're like terrified. And they're like, what the heck do I do? How do I get back on financial footing? JJ specifically himself said he was, and I quote, treating my 401k balance like a plague, but then decided to rip the bandaid off and take a peek, looked at his 401k balance, didn't like what the 401k showed, then Googled. How much should I have in my 401k at my age? Saw how much he should have, saw how much he does have, and said, crap, I'm behind. And I, I wanted to, I was like, JJ, where are you at? Because I wanted to find JJ and say, JJ, you have a 401k. Like, yeah. that, that's where it's at. You're young. You got it. Maybe you're behind, but keep contributing. Just let it grow. You don't, what you don't need to do, and I don't know if JJ is going to do this, but what you don't need to do is invest that in crypto or like pull it out and take the penalty to take risks to catch up. You don't need to do that. Just keep, keep going. And I just kind of feared when I read this, that if millennials, and this seems like it's more like the younger side of millennials, um, not the geriatrics, the younger side of millennials don't feel like you don't have a future or potential retirement when you are like 30 because of a 20 to 30% market downturn. Well, okay. There's a lot here, right? One is it's hilarious in life. You know, a lot of times we make a call and we're like close to the target in a situation like this, 
people throw the dart and they throw it backwards. If the dartboard's in front of them, they throw it into the ocean backwards. Like they miss the point so much. Falling markets for a young investor is a really, really good thing. It's a great you thing. You should, if you're 25 years old right now, you should be rooting for the thing to go down 70%. You seriously should. And you should hope that it stays down there for the next 10 years while you can dollar cost average into the thing, spending money on every paycheck. If that happens, you're going to be so wealthy by the time you retire, you won't even know what to do. What's bad for you is this, the last 12 years, this uh, extremely, the US stock market being one of the most expensive stock markets in the world, a 12 year bull market. Those are all terrible. So I'm with you on if we're having a beer with JJ, like now's the time to get excited. Now's the time. Yeah. If you're behind a little, maybe you'd figure out if you can up your contributions, but it's just really important to stay the course. And if you stay the course, you get this massive benefit from being able to ride through the volatility that other people miss because a lot of people do that exact same thing and they check their balance and they feel like they're behind and then they make rash decisions that cost them more money that put them further behind. That's exactly right. I I nailed it. And JJ, I didn't mention this, but so JJ's black too. So going back to what we're talking about and JJ, I'm going to find this quote. Hold on. He says, the specter of a possible future in which I become a part of the 83% of Black Americans who lack sufficient retirement assets wasn't only looming over me, but was tapping me on the shoulder and whispering, get it together. I get that mentality. But to what you just said, like you have a 401k, JJ, like this is the time. Just this this is when I say this is the time, what I mean is I don't mean this is the time to like go and do something crazy. I mean, this is the time for mental fortitude for you to like understand that this stuff happens and that it is a feature. Like it's a, it's a great feature of the markets for younger folks. Right. And just like, you're doing your thing, man. Just keep doing it. This and you're writing for the Wall Street keep... Journal too. Shoot. Yeah. I mean, and the, yeah, totally. This is the volatility, the pain that comes with losing money. Um, like happened in the first half of 22 is the whole, that's how you get 7% of return. Um, over 50 years or 10% or whatever it ends up being. If you could go to a bank and get a guaranteed 10% return with no vol, I mean, you can't. The reason why is because people would do that instead of investing in ownership of companies. It, this is how you get there. Exactly. Exactly. So, all right. Should we end on a positive note? Yes, we should. This is a, seriously, this is kind of a depressing episode. I don't even know that I want to listen to this one, Dougal. <laughs> End it with a bang. End it with a bang. What's, what's, what's up in the fishbowl? Like only, only one Postman loan joke so far. I don't think there's been any other <laughs> jokes. It's all seriousness about the decaying American dream. You sent this my way. So Full Stack Economics did a breakdown of 24 charts that show we're mostly better off than living than our parents were. So this is our generation. Could be folks like JJ, who we just talked about. And it basically compares living standards today to living standards in the 80s. There's a lot here, Dougals. I mean, I don't want to... Maybe we'll just hit on a a few highlights and see if anything is super interesting to us. But we have better access to fruits and vegetables. Significantly better access to fruits and vegetables. Yeah, and I can I stop you on this chart for one second? Yeah. So... By significantly, let's talk about blueberries. Let's talk about how, so blueberries is an antioxidant. 
people need oxygen. And I feel like the fact that we're eating eight times more blueberries than we did 30 years ago <laughs> might be might be too much. This might be too much. Yeah. Uh, blueberries is off the chart. Oh, you really want you want to go into the tangents here. So on the vegetables front, avocados are up 400 percent in the last 30 years. And we all know that avocados are horrible. They're stealing all of Chile's water and like the, the avocados. People get killed for avocados all over the world simply so Americans can have avocado toast. That's up too much, in my opinion, as well. We're spoiled. We, we are very spoiled. And how much of that is on toast? That's like just like when on the fruit with limes. I want to see limes with and without margaritas. Like how much <laughs> are basically limes just margarita up? consumption. That's <laughs> yeah. All right, keep going. I mean, the cost of a TV is down ninety four percent. Why? Why don't we just like give these things away? It, so much is cheaper. This is a comparison. I mean, paint, car batteries, hammers. Hammers are down sixty three percent. Electric leaf blowers are eighty one percent cheaper. Window AC down 83%. And the comparison for this chart, Diggles, is from a Sears catalog in 1980. Isn't that so great? That's where they got their prices. Oh, oh it's man. wonderful. The, uh, the other one that blew my mind here is looking at inflation-adjusted prices for some goods and services. So at tuition and child care, medical care, energy, rent, food at home, durable goods and apparel. And you've got durable goods and apparel that are down 50%. Inflation adjusted prices down 50% since the since 1990. Tuition and child care were more than double. Inflation adjusted. Yeah. More than double what they were over 30 years ago. We've talked about both of those actually here, tuition more. Uh, on the pod, but that is buck wild. And that continues for me. Childcare continues to be this industry that baffles me because I always feel like the, the spend of the individual is so much more than what the other side gets. Oh, well, uh, yeah, let's keep going. So in nickel and dimed, uh, one of her jobs is a maid and she works as a for one of the services, like the merry maids where they have their own cars and everything else. Right. Yep. Yep. They're, they're typically charging their clients 25 bucks an hour, roughly per worker. And their workers at the time were making like six seventy five. It's a good there chunk. That's not going to the working poor. Right. And yeah. I feel like that happens in childcare as well. I think, I, I mean, this is really complex. There's no easy fixes, but one of the simplest fixes, if you support one of those services, is maybe tr try and take out the middleman um, for childcare or uh, cleaning services. Because, well, that, that's why um, I this word is always difficult for me to pronounce. But the the risk that marketplaces like that are always trying to mitigate is disintermediation. Oh, I got it. Yeah. Yeah, God, I'm yeah. not going to try again. I got it. Uh, because what happens is you find that that caretaker or you find that cleaner on the marketplace and then they go off platform. Yep. Because you there's 70% or whatever, 30%, depending on the platform, right? There's a significant amount that's not going to the end user or you know the end benef benefactor there. So hear yeah. that. 
on this chart, the 50% drop in durable goods and apparel. I mean, these people clearly aren't buying Patagucci Dougals. Like, what? excuse me? Who? <laughs> Patagucci. Well, first of all, buying and apparel are two words that I never have in the same. <laughs> oh, gosh. And what does that apparel drop mean? Does that mean we just outsource more of our it, it uh, might. labor related to apparel? Yeah, th- there's like a uh, going back to your avocado point. God, I'm I'm I should just keep it positive. But going going back to your avocado point, there's probably like a um this is Americans living better than their parents, but like what are the global externalities? <laughs> like like what is the rest of the the impact on rest yeah. of the world? Yeah, right. Um, exactly. This we don't is need a talk, very we can just keep American talking about avocados though. We can keep talking about avocados. Um according to chart 10 on this, the Welfare and tax programs have boosted incomes for the top and bottom. So per capita income across all income levels is up about 40%, according to this chart, since 1990, which is interesting. But for the top 20%, it's up more than 50%, as well as for the bottom 20%, it's up more than 50%. The middle 60% is only up about 28% since 1990 this is a really interesting chart i don't know what it means per se but um it seems like the tax and welfare programs are targeting like the barbell of the top and bottom and the middle is kind of being forgotten in a way the other the other thing in this one is it shows a hourly earnings of production and non-supervisory employees Mm -hmm. line which is up call it 15 16 percent roughly here, if you look at the difference between that and income being up, what you have there basically is investment income of, of various yeah. various parts, right? Because you have that's the R is greater than G, right? Right yonder, true. Right yonder, R is greater than G, right? Uh, R is greater than G. We talk about all the time. It's uh, that the rate of growth as capital is is higher than the rate of growth of income or of uh, wages, and you can see that right here. Like that is the difference. Yes. A lot more people have washing machines, uh, washers and dryers, dishwashers, central AC. I don't think any of that's a surprise. Uh, There's a lot of McMansions in this country. We can debate if that's a good or a bad thing. But what appears to be interesting relative to that is that even though homes have gotten significantly bigger since 1980, um, apartments are now starting to pull back since uh, 2007 the average size of an apartment is actually shrinking a little. That's interesting. And wasn't there, there was something else around home ownership being cheaper, but rent not? Let's see if I can find that one. Yeah, home ownership did get cheaper um, in large part because of the how low interest rates were. So the mortgage payment came down and then rent has basically hung right near hourly wages. I think until recently, I think rents are up significantly in the past two years in a way that's separating from hourly wages. And that's going to be a challenge that probably brings rents back down, in my opinion. You know what this positivity reminds me of, this factual positivity reminds me of, is a book we talked about early last year, Factfulness. Yeah. Which at the highest of high levels was like one, Look at numbers correctly so you understand what's going on, right? Always look at the absolute value and also something that's relative. And two, the numbers over the longer term, actually the world's getting better. We often focus on the stuff that's getting worse and it's important, 
to actually dive into the stuff that's getting worse so you can fix it. But don't just like look at the headlines of the stuff that's getting worse, but we often do that. But recognize that stuff is also getting better. How do we double down on the better and make the worse better? Exactly. Well, guys, this was a, a interesting show. We did a, a mini book report, talk of the American dream. Hit us up. Let me let us know what you think. Um, easiest place, one-stop shop is skippydougals.com. Substack subscription sends you all the articles we talk about each week, each Monday. It's a really handy thing. So that's skippydougals.substack.com. And uh, please rate and review the podcast if you get a chance. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Have a good one.